Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. I'm Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine Banks. And today's pin is in honor of Indigenous Peoples Day. So happy Indigenous people. And it's also still known as Columbus Day. Yes, there has been no shortage of news regarding President Trump. Just a few weeks ago, Andrew Weissman joined Jill and me to talk about Trump stealing documents from Mar-a-Lago and the absurd legal arguments raised by his lawyers and then accepted by Judge Cannon, who was then chastised by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And the news just keeps getting worse and worse for the former guy in terms of Georgia, New York, additional documents still being withheld and Thursday's January 6th committee hearing and so on. And today we will be talking about a lot of that and so much more with Michael Cohn. And Victor, go ahead because I've lost all my notes. <laughs> no worries. This is this is what happens when we go live. I guess we, we can't control anything. But we are so uh, lucky to be joined by Michael uh, as everyone probably knows, he served as attorney for uh, Donald Trump for about 12 years of the Trump Organization before he was president. And he was known as Trump's fixer, uh, as our audience well knows. And he was confronted with his crimes, pled guilty, and then became a strong voice in exposing Trump's conduct to this day. And we are all grateful for that. Um, another former guest of ours, New York Letitia James, uh, New York Attorney General credited uh, Michael recently for his testimony before Congress as the basis for her complaint against uh, Donald Trump for manipulating valuations and more. And tomorrow, his new book, Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice Against His Critics, come out. So we are so excited for that. And um, we will definitely be looking out for that. Um, And so we are so excited to have you. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Uh, Good to see you, Victor. Good to see you, Jill. Thank you for being here, Michael. We appreciate it. You know, Victor, if I can actually just jump in for a second, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote Revenge, that's this book right here, one of the reasons that I wrote it is because there's really a lack of understanding, and I don't blame people for the lack of understanding, as to what crime I actually really committed. Yes, I pled guilty to a series of crimes. There were five issues. Michael, we're going to get to that when we've read your book. So we want to set the background for your book and talk about what what is going to help people understand your book. Um, so well, yeah, I, I appreciate Maybe just talk I, about why you wrote the book. Why did you write it? You wrote it to because you felt that you deserved revenge because of how the Department of Justice treated you. I think that's sort of your motive, right? Uh, Yes and no. I mean, revenge is the dissection of the most corrupt investigation in U.S. history. I mean, into a citizen in American history. Because what the book does is it demonstrates, using my case as the example, what happens when an autocratic, fascist-minded president elects to weaponize the Department of Justice to silence a critic. Now, moreover, what it really is, and it's why the gen, you know, that this generation is so relevant and why I'm hoping that they will read the book, because it's really a call to action on two fronts. First of all, it's, you know, the desperate need for us 
to be active in terms of overhauling the Justice Department in its entirety. And secondly, it's also to hold accountable those who violate their obligations, whether it's the prosecutors, the judges, attorney, generals, or even the president himself, because to do anything less will result in the complete destruction of our democracy. I mean, it's why, you know, I, I ended up writing the book. And what I hope at the end of the day that people get out of it is that you have to recognize that Trumpism is fascism. And as I state in the book, we must destroy it and eradicate it from our body politic. Okay, so I think both Victor and I would agree that Trumpism definitely. is definitely fascism, authoritarianism. Uh, it is not a, a democratic way of running the government. Um, I would dispute whether we need to reform the Department of Justice or just the people who a criminal president puts in place to run it in a corrupt way. When you have legitimately decent people at the top of the Department of Justice, you don't have the problems. But I, I'm really curious to ask about why Donald Trump is holding documents hostage. And that's how I'm hearing the news these days. I'm sure you've seen the reporting that suggests that he was saying, well, I'll trade these documents for documents that NARA has, which it's questionable whether there are any that exist because he hasn't identified anything specific, but he thinks that there's something there that will show that the Russia investigation was a hoax. Now, he hasn't named any documents, but can you talk about what he thinks might be there and why he's holding documents hostage that he has no legal right to? Why he's so so let, let me start with the, first, the second half of your question. I obviously, like you, like everyone, we have no idea what documents NARA has. It's not as if that they put out a list for us to take a look <laughs> in the index of a book that says, right, uh, we have this that shows that there is no P-tape. And I can assure you that there is no P-tape. That's an absolute lie. What I have been continuously stating, and I've stated here on your show as well, is that Donald Trump has no appreciation, no respect for the Department of Justice or for process. And so he doesn't care that NARA wanted back the documents. He doesn't care that he took documents that don't belong to him. That's irrelevant. What doesn't make any sense to me is why he allowed, for example, Christina Bob, his attorney, to sign the affidavit that stated that they have no more documents, despite the fact that there's clearly someone within his inner circle that is providing government with this information. And I'll just hypothesize and say, I, I bet it's probably Jared Kushner. But putting all that aside, the thing that really baffles me is if he wanted these documents... Why didn't he do this when he was president of the United States? He's, he could have easily gotten this by putting that lapdog loser of his, Bill Barr, onto the, onto the scene, right? And making sure that he got all the documents in order to ensure. I've been repeatedly saying that Donald Trump took those documents to extort the U.S. government into wait, some wait, type of a deal. I think you're, you're, uh, it's confusing what you're saying, I just want, when we're talking about documents, there's the documents that he took and there's the documents that he says he wants that relate to the Russia, the Russia investigation. Russia related. Right. And, and 
he's saying that there's something, but you're right. So as to those, if there was any such document, then why didn't he look for him when he was in charge of that's, the that's, that's the point I brought up yesterday on MSNBC. Yeah. He's the president. He could have gotten them. And it's not as if the Russia probe only started, you know, um, when he left office. It's been going on for five years now. If he right. really right. thought there was something there, he could have easily gotten them. Right. But he couldn't have taken them with him, even if he had them, because they are the people's documents. They belong to journalists. They belong to historians. They belong to the American government, where they are stored by NARA, the National Archives. And he would not, even if he had had them, he could have published them. He could have used them to show that it was fake, which doesn't that mean to you that he's lying? There is no such thing. And then just Listen, these documents for whatever reason? To, to ask me a question if Donald Trump lies, Bill, <laughs> Donald Trump lies the way you and Victor breathe, all right? It, it, and he does it with impunity. But what he could do, assuming that these documents existed, which I don't believe that they do, what right. he could have, what he could do is what the rest of us are doing. Make a FOIA request for it. He would know that they exist. He would probably have the numbers on the document because every single document is numbered. So he would know the numbers right off the bat, and he would just make a FOIA request for him. So, yes, is Donald lying? Yes. Is he doing it to deflect? Yes. This is part of the Trump playbook, something that I talked about, you know, even going to the House Oversight Committee hearing. So it's not just Donald Trump that lies. It's also his lawyers. Um, and you mentioned uh, Christina Bob, and uh, there are also numerous other lawyers of his, Rudy, Sidney, Jenna, Ellis, um, Eastman. Eastman, all of them. He's somehow able to find all of these attorneys who make just really absurd, ludicrous arguments that even a high schooler, a middle schooler could do better at making. How does he convince these lawyers uh, to do such stupid things for him? Okay, so it's a difficult question to answer simply because so many of them have done so many stupid things that are in so many different areas. It's a very broad question. Let's first just take Christina Bob. The mistake that she made is that she trusted Donald Trump. Now, as a lawyer, you are entitled, you're permitted to trust your client. What she shouldn't have done is sign an affidavit acknowledging that all the documents have been returned. Well, that's why she. Wait a second. She didn't actually. Her language was pretty careful. She said, "I am informed." Correct. I was going to get to that. I was given. Okay. I was going to get to that, and so she took the statement that her client gave to her that it was returned, and she then incorporated it into this document that she then filed with uh, NARA and with the government. That's that's my that's my understanding. And that's why she's now be, uh, going to become a witness against him at this uh, through the DOJ, because it's either her or him. Now, now you take somebody like Rudy Colludi, drunken Giuliani, and you ask why he does something that is stupid. Well, that's because Rudy has lost his mind. Uh, Rudy is not the same Rudy Giuliani that we all remember during 9-11 and helping to clean up organized crime in New York, in essence, becoming America's mayor. Mm -hmm. He's become the laughing stock going back to the Four Seasons uh, landscaping, you know, uh, parking lot 
scenario all the way to the shoe polish on his head dripping down <laughs> his cheeks. Yeah. Why he does it? Because Rudy is a power monger. Um, and what he really wanted was to be able to use Donald the same way Donald was using him in order to advance himself, his career, his company, Giuliani Partners, and to be able to trade off of the relationship for additional business. Um, and so when I guess you're desperate, you do stupid things. So well, that leads to a question. Uh, when you were being introduced, you have always been known as Donald's lawyer and fixer. And so let's talk about that. Do you accept that description? Were you his fixer, do you think? Um, look, that was the name that was given to me. I certainly didn't create the name for myself. No, but, but did you feel uh, you filled that role? The answer is, the answer is yes. Um, now, again, that's, the word fixer is a very broad term. So, for example, they started to describe me as Ray Donovan or uh, they would uh, Tom Hagen. Uh, for Michael Corleone or, you know, Don Corleone from the Godfather movie. Let right. me be very clear that the Trump organization is not Murder, Inc. There were no murders. You know, people didn't come in, you know, to the office, get hit in the head with a shovel, drag the body across the street to Central Park and bury it. That never happened. When they say fix it, it was predominantly reputational. It was crisis management. That's a company that I just recently started uh, in dealing with crisis management, in dealing with, for example, when he and Billy Bush made the stupid statement about grabbing the women uh, and so on. It was trying to spin the entire story. Now, did we also use lawsuits in order to go after people for defamation or for contracts that he felt were not uh, properly adhered to? The answer is yes, but it's no different than any other lawyer. I just happen to have been better at it in finding the angles. And did it resolve many of Trump's problems? The answer is yes. Uh, as far as you know, the, the charges that were levied against me by the Southern District of New York, one of the things I discuss in the book is the process to which the Southern District of New York acts and behaves also known as the Sovereign District of New York, where they, in essence, created a, we'll call it a hostage video of my plea, simply because they threatened to indict and incarcerate my wife if I didn't plead guilty in 48 hours from a Friday to a Monday. And you're right. I'm going to send you a book. You'll read it, and I'll come on another time. But I want all your listeners to think for a quick second, what would you do if your loved one, what would you do if your significant other had a gun to their head and they basically told you, you plead guilty to this. I never tax evaded. You plead guilty to this, or we're filing an 80-page indictment against you that's going to include your wife. Yesterday was my 28th wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary. I love I love this woman with my with my entire soul. And there was no chance in the world I was going to let these animals perp walk her out of our building on television in front of the media, you know, fingerprint her and indict her. That was never going to happen under my watch. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to go. go yeah. or, or you want to go back to I wanted to ask a question about. Yeah, sure. sure. You're working with Donald Trump and what he was like as a boss. I mean, just when you, you know, a lot of times people ask me for career advice and it's sort of like I say, you have to think about 
what are you going to actually do when you get to the office and you sit down at your desk or when you go to the work site, whatever your job is, what are you going to actually be doing? And will that be something you enjoy? Do you like the people who surround you? So what was it like going? And, and when you were saying it wasn't Murder, Inc., there is, you know, I, the image that came to my mind was he said, I could kill someone on Fifth Avenue and no one would care. And of course, Trump Tower, where you work, is on Fifth Avenue. So if it had happened, no one probably would have cared. But tell me what it was like going to the office and being with him every day. What was he like? Was he nice? It was, actually, it was actually very exciting. Every day brought a new challenge to it. Actually, every hour brought a new challenge. I enjoyed working with my colleagues that were there. Um, I was also on the board of the Miss Universe organization. So that was very, that was a lot of fun. I was co-president of Trump Productions. So dealing with, you know, um, The Apprentice, you know, which was the number one show at, at the time, uh, was very interesting and exciting as well. Spending time with all the celebrities, finding the celebrities uh, as well as the uh, non-celebrities. Uh, then on top of that, there were always issues. You know, there was always real estate issues going on. There were always business issues going on. You know, was Donald a difficult individual to work with? Yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, he sees things differently than others. And if you made a mistake, chances are you would lose your job. Um, so you had to be perfect all the time. And he expected even more from me because, you know, I rarely made those types of mistakes. And I always followed his direction. So, you know, if there was an error, I would come back and say, listen, I was following the protocol that you want. Let's see what we can do to reverse it. I was also incredibly adept at what has been referred to as the catch and kill of stories, especially negative ones that would impact him personally, the Trump organization. And ultimately, when he announced that he was going to run for the presidency, that would have, of course, um, hurt his campaign. So it sounds I, like you did a lot of non-legal yeah. work. I mean, the, those aren't the normal, you know, legal advice kinds of things. But, um, and, and, you know, you never, I, I asked you about why you thought he took the documents that he has now, that have Boy, already uh, been recovered, and who knows what else is still there, or at Bedminster, or at um, Trump Tower, um, or somewhere else. I mean, so actually, Jill, I did answer. I did answer the yeah. question. I told you he was going to use them as a get out of jail free card. That he was going to use it to extort the government somehow. And I've said, okay. I've said that not just today. Okay. I've, I've been saying okay. it now for several months. Now is again what the documents specifically are that he has. I don't know, but I'll tell you who we have to give some credit to. Carolyn Maloney has not left this alone. You may have seen several okay. weeks ago she yeah. forwarded a letter to Nara demanding right. as the chair of the House Oversight Committee um, that they get Donald Trump to sign an affidavit, which, of course, is under oath and subject to the penalties of perjury, that he no longer has documents. He doesn't right. he hasn't stored them and he hasn't given them to anybody uh, or he hasn't shown those documents to anybody. Chances are January 6th committee will subpoena him to do that. Doubtful. Uh, however, it, it's uh, not the January 6th committee. Now that let's assume he doesn't respond to NARA. Now, what Congresswoman Maloney can do is on behalf of the House Oversight Committee, 
they could now send a letter, the identical letter to Donald, demanding that he sign it. If he doesn't, yes, they can subpoena him before the January 6th uh, hearing or her House Oversight Committee can subpoena him as well in order to testify under oath as to what they're looking for. Yeah, but they would have to do it, unfortunately, in a lame duck session because they're out of Congress. They're, they're on recess until after the election, and she is not even a, a candidate anymore. So That's correct. Um, she'll have only from November 9th, um, I don't know exactly when they return, but it's after after the election on the 8th. Um, so there's not a lot of time. No, uh, that's always it doesn't mean it can't time. happen. It yeah. could happen. Yeah. It, it yeah. could and should. Absolutely. Somebody should do it. But you remember many times I have said, even when you were on my program on Maya Culpa, one of the things that I talked about is Trump's method for how does he get away with all this? Everybody wants to know, yeah. how is this Teflon done? It's always delay, delay, delay. And things happen in life that like Carolyn Maloney losing to Jerry Nadler, losing yeah. this seat that gets gerrymandered, that the two of them never should have had to run against each other. They were two great Very members sad. of Congress. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So things happen. And Donald, if he could, will delay it yeah. to the day after he passes, right? That I mean, it would end up. Yeah. And that's just what he does. He's all about the delay tactic. I mean, there's, you make a good point. I mean, it's all about delay and he's done that for his entire life. Do you think this time will be different? Will he evade accountability like all the other times in the past? Or do you think this time's a little bit different? The walls are closing in on him. So listen, we've all heard that so many times already. Yeah. And I think people have lost faith in our Department of Justice and Merrick Garland slow walking this thing. What are we over two years now in the January 6th hearing or some uh, or in some of these um, in some of these uh, legal matters in even longer even. And, and it's just why? Why? Why not move? Why not indict? Because, you know, they're they're certainly the exact opposite of Attorney General, former Attorney General Bill Barr. If this was the other way around and it was Joe Biden and um, the former president put everything into, we'll call it bizarro land and everything is opposite. I promise you, Bill Barr would have not just indicted Joe Biden. Dr. Jill Biden would be indicted. So would Hunter. So would the grandkids, great grandkids, and even the unborn grand, uh, great, great, great grand, grandkids would be indicted because that's how that's how Trump behaves. There's no process. There's no law. Did you hear his nonsensical response when he was talking to Sean Hannity about process? He doesn't even understand that there is a word process. It's just whatever he chooses. That's what he wants it to be. He doesn't have to go through a process to declassify a document. He could wait. Oh, it's declassified. I just thought it. I just thought it. Therefore, it is. I mean, that's actually a sickness. We talk about him as being a narcissistic sociopath. This I don't even know if there's a term that deals with this sort of psychosis that he suffers from. I mean, it's almost like um, he's omnipotent. He could think declassification. It's amazing. I mean, there are so many times when I think he can't say anything dumber and then he says something dumber <laughs> and it's extraordinary. I want to follow up on something that Jill asked. She asked you about what it was like working for Donald Trump. And I'm so curious about that because he kind of, before 
been coming present. I mean, I have to admit, I watched him on The Celebrity Apprentice and I saw his other media appearances. Sure I never knew that. And I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that. Sorry, Jill. I know I'm com- confessing all my sins. Um, but this is, I mean, I'm curious, did he exhibit the traits that he exhibited as president in the sense that did he demand loyalty from everywhere around him? Was it kind of like a cult of personality around Donald Trump in the Trump organization? Yes. I mean, from the second that you walked into Trump Tower and you past the uh, stand by the elevators that have Trump named onto it, followed by all of the um, concession, uh, you know, stands that were there that had Trump plastered all over it. And then you get up into the elevator and there's Trump on the walls. And then you get up to the 26th floor uh, where you, you know, are greeted by massive Trump organization letters, you know, only to go into his office, which is loaded with, hundreds and hundreds of um, picture frames, all of him uh, from different (laughs) magazines. And then you sit down and his entire front of his desk is filled with latest um, articles about him, magazine covers with him, some new, some old and so on. So yes, it is a cult. um, But I do want to be very clear. You weren't the only one, Victor, watching The Apprentice. It was the number one show on NBC for many, many years. All right. And on top of that, Donald has the ability to be charming. You may remember when I turned around and I talked uh, before the House Oversight Committee and I said, you know, Trump exhibits, you know, has uh, exhibits uh, signs of generosity, but he's not a generous person. He can be compassionate. He can show compassion, but he's not a compassionate person, right? Thank you. I'm glad whoever's going that disagrees with me. These are <laughs> these are the things that Donald. These are the things that Donald displays. It's these. Um, he can show um, compassion, but he's not a compassionate man. Um, you know, what makes he, him show compassion? What what? Give me an example of when he was compassionate. So, so um, there was a young girl in a hospital. Um, in Queens that, you know, has his father's name on the side of it. And he was walking through the hospital, the administrator asked, and she was a young girl who had lost a limb. And he walked into the room, you know, just, you know, unbeknownst, he walked into the room and it's Donald Trump. And they were, even though, you know, she was obviously not in a good place. And the mom was talking to him about the cost of prosthetics and so on. And, um, I believe that he paid to have a prosthetic done. Uh, You know, he would go on to his golf course and he would see one of his caretakers and he would, you know, hit and he would do this on a regular basis. He would just walk over, give the guy two, three hundred dollars and tell him to go take his wife out for dinner. You know, these are generous acts. But he's not not doing it. He's not doing it to be generous. Right. But he's not doing it to be generous. He's doing it. He's doing it for a purpose. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. look, the way I feel about things like that, I don't really care why you did it. You did it. And so it is an act of, of generosity, despite the fact that he's not a generous person. Yeah. So what did you do before joining the Trump Organization? I know you graduated law school. What was your career like before 2008, I think, when you joined? So I finished law school in 1990. Then right out of law school, I went and I was working for a personal injury medical malpractice firm downtown. Mm-hmm. I stayed there for five years. Um, I had an opportunity to buy a business. 
um, in the transportation industry, yellow cab industry, uh, while I was building the transportation industry, which myself and my ex-partner did, uh, up to 285 yellow cabs here in New York um, and purchasing medallions as well on my own. Um, I also built a law practice because I continued to do the negligence uh, and malpractice work. Uh, then after that, after my partner had bought um, I, myself out, then uh, I opened up uh, again, you know, uh, the I took the personal injury malpractice side and I took it to another location, ultimately to then merge my firm into the law firm of Phillips Neiser, you know, from the great Louis Neiser. Um, and, you know, because I had a ton. I, I bet of, Victor doesn't know who that is, but I do. Yeah. He's one of the most famous um, child attorneys in, in the country wow. uh, from the past. And um, with that, I also had over the years built up quite a um, client base of extremely, extremely wealthy individuals where I was doing uh, corporate work, you know, for them uh, and advising them and helping them to restructure companies or to even just grow the companies. I mean, I had, um, you know, the son of uh, one of the Saudi princes as, you know, as a, as a client. And he, you know, I had some enormously uh, successful and wealthy clients. And then ultimately, while I was at um, Phillips Neiser, uh, Trump had asked me to do some stuff for him that included, and I talk about it in my original book, Disloyal, uh, including the third chapter 11 reorganization of TER, Trump Entertainment Resorts, which was the casino, and some other work for him. And then he ultimately, one day, instead of paying me money that he owed me for the bill, he asked me if I wanted to come to work for him. What do you mean instead of paying you? <laughs> so he owed me about $100,000 in the legal bills. He had called me over um, to his office and I went and I sat down with him and, you know, he just popped out the question. He goes, are you happy at that sleepy old firm? And I said, I, I am, you know, I'm not really working too hard. I have my clients. I make sure that they're good. It's I'm, I'm really, I'm in a good place. So he said, why don't you come work for me? But only for me, you'll be my special counsel. And look, like so many other people, I had read The Art of the Deal. I was a, you know, a, a fan of The Apprentice. I had followed Trump's career. I owned apartments in three of his buildings um, you know, as investments. And so I was like, um, can I think about it? He says, no, you have to give me the answer right now. And if you say yes, I'll send people over to Phillips Neiser and I'll have them Pack out your office and you'll take Ivanka's here on 26. Oh, my gosh. And so I said, yeah, sure. And then he, I said to him, what, what about the bill? So he said to me, you want to get fired on your first day? <laughs> right. And then, of course, that was after a negotiation on salary. And the funny at that point in time, it wasn't about the money for me. I retired uh, at the time. You know, I was 39. I had done very well, luckily, you know, for myself. It was all luck and you know, I was the right place, the right time on several ventures. And I didn't go to work for Donald because I needed the money. Like some of these people out there believe, you know, um, other than Donald, I was, I think, the second richest guy in the office by a multiple. And wow. mine is not a rags to riches story, as the media likes to portray. In fact, it's more of a riches to rags story because, you know, at the age of 56, reinventing yourself now, 
you know, for the third time in your life <laughs> while you lose your law license, your business. And there's this lie, this reputational lie that's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, not easy. So, so, Michael, I want to follow up on that because um, I can't believe that Phillips Neiser left a $100,000 bill that was owed to the firm because you were at a firm that wasn't owed to you personally. So you couldn't just say, oh, I don't care if you pay me. Uh, you'll make up for it in future earnings. They were owed for your work. And uh, didn't they sue him? No. In fact, it's one of the things that most law firms don't do, that they generally don't sue their clients. It's almost like an unwritten rule in the white shoe firms. They just don't, they don't do it. However, uh, we did give them some additional business in order to make it up. You know, in the future, uh, I had still had my brother who was still over there you know, at the same time as well. Uh, he's a lawyer as well. As I didn't know you had a brother. And two sisters who are also lawyers. Oh, really? What are, the, what are their names and what do they do? Well, I don't want to talk about my, my okay. family. <laughs> That's okay, yeah. They're off not to, right? Um, okay. <laughs> well, we'll have to look them all up. Oh, well, I'm not sure why, <laughs> but all right. <laughs> All right, let's let's go back to um, you mentioned your f- kind of first impression meeting Trump. Did your first impression ever change, and and when and why did it change? Well, first impressions. Uh, I had known Donald before, um, you know, obviously by reading about him, uh, by following the career, as well as being an investor, as I said, in three of his properties. So the answer is, you know. Has my opinion of him changed over what time period? Obviously, you know, when he became president, uh, Donald legitimately became the worst version of himself imaginable, right? It would almost be to the extent of if you have a guy who's in your class and he's just bigger than everybody else. It's just, you know, naturally DNA. He's just like the biggest guy in the whole school, right? And now hit him up with a round of, human growth hormones and steroids on a 365 day, you know, and you give him the rage and the anger, he's out of control. That's what Donald became when he finally really understood what the power of the presidency means. He himself said it. I can do whatever I want. Being the president is like being the king. No, that's not true, Donald. And in fact, that's what our founding fathers were always afraid of, that there would be a president who would see himself as greater than the office of the presidency and look to do things not for the benefit of the country, but for his own benefit. Something that I've been saying since day number one, that this entire campaign was never supposed to result in a victory. It was always supposed to be the greatest infomercial in the history of presidential politics. It was to grow the company, not to become the president. Let me ask you another question, going back to something Victor mentioned, which is New York Attorney General uh, Tish James and the lawsuit that she filed. It's civil, but the damages that she's looking for could really eviscerate completely the Trump organization, could put them completely out of business. What do you think the chances of her success are? And Uh, is not anyone cooperating from inside? Yes. So the answer is it's very high. Tish, uh, Tish James, I believe, has an ironclad case. There's no doubt about that. Remember, he also, meaning Donald, uh, took the fifth on every single question other than his name during the deposition. Now, because it's civil, you are able to use the 
taking of the fifth as a negative inference. On top of that, she has all the documents. She has the tax documents. She has the personal financial statements. She has a roadmap. There's no doubt in my mind that civilly, because of the, um, the level of proof that is required, she will be successful in this case. One of the things that the 220-page lawsuit also stated is that she's looking for a baseline not a top line, a baseline of $250 million. And I've been quoted mm-hmm. as saying, I believe that that number is probably closer with penalties, interests, and so on, uh, probably between 750 to $1 billion. He does not have that, nor does he have the available equity in his assets to cover that. Um, so he's going to have to do a lot more grifting with his supporters in order to figure this out, because that's going to be the end of the Trump organization. Right. I but do I- want to also mention one thing, Jill, something that Tish James very intelligently did. She's now also referred a bunch of these matters over to Justice Department, as well as the IRS. And again, I've been very, very um, I've been very straight when I say, remember Al Capone, because I call this the Capone theory. You don't need to get him on murder, extortion, racketeering. In Donald's case, January 6th, you know, um, and all the other things that are plaguing him. Uh, the presidential campaign and data. You don't need to do that. You only need to get him on the low-hanging fruit. Go after the taxes. And I believe that there are enough people out there, myself included, who have provided testimony stating he knew exactly what he was doing when he inflated his assets for the purpose of demonstrating financial wealth and deflating them for the purposes of taxes. Right. But what do you think happened to the audit? Why is that not either closed or settled by him paying hundreds of millions of dollars? What audit are you referring to, Jill? Well, the audit that he says started before he announced in 2015. Oh, are are you talking about a potential another Trump lie? Has he ever demonstrated a document that shows that he's under audit? I know for a fact I could never get that document. I said to him one time when it first came out, give me the document that shows that you're under audit. Doesn't say doesn't we can redact any information that you think, you know, is you know, is private. And so let's just do it and let's put an end to it. So he goes, he goes, just do me a favor, just just say it. Right? It's I'm under audit. I'm always under audit. Um if he was under audit, I promise you, you would have known it. Okay. Thank you. All right. So we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, ask you, since you left the Trump organization and went to jail, you've been very, very vocal about all of Trump's wrongdoings do- um, that you surely knew about as his lawyer. Talk about that a little bit and, and why you're doing that. Why don't you tell me which wrongdoing uh, you want me to uh, because oh, there are there just are too so many. Again, it's extremely, it's a broad question. Yeah. Um, I think people enjoy more the anecdotes, um, you know, as opposed to, I mean, because every day is an anecdote. Every day is Captain Chaos out there, you know, sowing additional um, problems for this country. But give me like one wrongdoing that you would like me to discuss. Let's say. Um, How about his current fundraising off of sure. the big his supporters? Yeah. Well, again, that didn't have to. That happened obviously many years, even after I got out of prison. Let's go back to the Trump Organization, like your question. You know, what is what is it specifically that you want me to touch on? 
let's say the fraudulent practices um, that Letitia James charged him for. Okay. So what happened in that specific case is every year, Donald is obsessed with his net worth. That is his ego. He, is, he measures him, his own self-worth. Sad, but it's true. He measures his own self-worth by how much money he has. And so each year he would then, you know, um, call us in, myself and Alan Weisselberg, and we would have the year previous his personal financial statement. There'd be three copies, one for Donald, one for Alan, one for myself. And we would sit down and he would always go to the very last page. And that's the page that sums up how much money he's mm -hmm. worth. And so let's say it was $4.8 billion. And, you know, pages 1 through 12 or 13 have all of the assets listed and specified and so on. And then he would turn around and he would say, I'm worth much more than four point. He goes, he goes I'm, I'm worth at least seven and a half. And, you know, and then what he would say is, I mean, the two of you go back to the office, meaning Alan's office or the conference room, and... Um, show how my assets equal seven and a half billion dollars. So it was what we'll call reverse engineering. Those documents were ultimately used down the road for uh, purposes of insurance, purposes of when we were trying to purchase the Buffalo Bills that I was, you know, that I and Alan were handling. Um, you know, these are the sort of things that, you know, you do. Now, did I know that, he was not worth the seven and a half billion. Sure. Um, you know, should I have turned around and said, no, right? We cannot change the numbers. You're actually worth less than even the four and a half billion dollars. I would have been fired on the spot. And so like everybody else, I followed along, you know, um, never thinking that this was going to become you know, what it's become, which is um, just a complete storm for me. It upended my entire life, you know. Um, so the answer is, I wish I had listened to my wife, my daughter, my son, and that I didn't take the job and that I had walked away from him and that I didn't need it. Why I, why I went, you know, um, for everybody – Right? There's always something in your life that either you're missing or that changes your perspective. Um, there was a lot of excitement going on. There was a lot of movement. There was a lot of uh, activity, a lot of deals. You know, That to me was what was enticing. And so I went along with this fantasy of trying to prove on various occasions, whether it was to Forbes or the real deal or anybody else, that Donald Trump was worth, you know, $10 billion ultimately. Well, it sounds like maybe the lesson of that is you have to learn to speak truth to power and be willing to walk away. It's a lesson that John Dean could have used many, many years ago and that would have served you well and maybe kept you out of jail. So that would yeah. be a good thing. But we look forward to having you back when we've read your book and can ask probing questions about it. And um, we, we look forward to that. So good luck tomorrow on the launch. Uh, that'll Thank be you. very much excellent. And for our audience, we hope you'll stay with us after we say goodbye to Michael. Victor and I get a chance to just talk a few minutes. 
Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you so much, guys. Bye. Jill, that was a very interesting episode. Um, and, and we know this week is uh, going to be very, very uh, jam-packed with the January 6th hearing on Thursday. And who knows what else will develop. Um, so I'm wondering, maybe I mean, it's Monday. We usually never report on Monday. What are you looking forward to this week? And, and what did you think of uh, the episode? First of all, there's Thursday when the it's hearing Thursday, is. Yes. Second of all, we're actually recording another live episode yes. this week. No, no, no. Uh, well, well, we're recording a pre-recorded episode that will be oh. dropped. Oh, next. that's right. Okay, yes. we're going to pre-record one because I'm speaking in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the Gerald Ford Presidential Museum. And um, I'm going to try using my cell phone <laughs> to share with our watchers, listeners, uh, what's in the museum. And I believe they have a special Watergate exhibit, so that'll be interesting. And they have said to me, that I can use the replica Oval Office to record. So that's going to be an exciting episode. You shouldn't have said replica. Well, you know, I shouldn't have. Well, actually, no, you should have. Yeah, it would have been cool to, to, to see. I'm honest. Well. I speak truth. <laughs> that's true. I learned that, that lesson from John. I, I absolutely yes. <laughs> learned the importance of that. And one of the best things that ever happened to me was when I was um, leaving the uh, Attorney General's office to become the um, executive director and COO of the American Bar Association, Neil Hardigan, the attorney general said to me, I'm gonna really miss you because I always knew that you wouldn't pull punches, that you would speak the truth, that you would tell me the things no one else would that I didn't wanna hear. And I learned that lesson young and it's has served me well for sure. So that's, I mean, those are some of the things I'm looking forward to this week. What about you? No, I'm also looking forward to that. I'm actually, um, I'm particularly interested in the museum because this quarter I'm actually taking a class on museum studies. I think I told you about that. And it's all about looking at the role of museums in our society, how museums are structured, how they interact with the audience. And so I was already looking forward to it because it was about Gerald Ford and that's someone who um, I feel like I doesn't really get taught that much in school. And so I think it will be an informative um, episode for both me, our audience, um, but also feel particularly interested because of the class I'm taking in. So maybe I'll have to report back to... uh... You're in California. Yes. You should obviously go to the um, Richard Nixon Presidential Library. Yes, yes. It is unbelievably fascinating. And then we should have my friend, Tim Naftali, who was a very early... um, He worked for NARA, and he was the director of the museum, who said... What do you mean you're not going to cover Watergate in this library? You cannot ignore that. Right. Forced the um, because originally it was a private foundation and they would absolutely pretend like it never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so he actually installed the Watergate section of that, and you must go see it. But now, how can I you talk about Richard Nixon without talking about Watergate? Well, exactly. And there's also his family, his childhood home which really will teach you a lot about how he grew up. It's quite amazing. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, the famous picture of him doing his... Uh, yes. At the That's helicopter. The helicopter yeah. is there. Wow. The actual helicopter. So it's it's a fascinating place. Okay, well, well, maybe maybe once once we do Gerald Ford and then I get a chance to tour the Richard Nixon Library, maybe we can do another uh, live episode from the Richard Nixon Library. And, and maybe yeah, do I'll a- do it while there's still a 
Democratic president so that yes. they'll let you do it. I don't know what will happen in future, but yeah. Exactly. Well, I, I'm, I'm, looking forward to, I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to the January 6th hearing. That should be very exciting. That should be the, I, I think the reporting says the last one before the midterms, maybe even of this year. And so- And maybe ever. Ever, maybe. Um, so it should be a very exciting uh, uh, hearing. Um, and the remaining minutes we have left, I mean, what are you looking forward to in this year? What do you hope that they- achieve on Thursday? Well, I want them to remind all of the listeners and watchers of what they've already proved because it's been a while. So I want them to show what happened, how close we came to losing democracy and Mm -hmm. what caused it, which is the actions of Donald Trump, Trump. his uh, administration, the failure to call out the police, the National Guard, But I also want them to show the continuing threat, how close Mm -hmm. we still Mm -hmm. are to losing it, and to remind people about all the election deniers who are running for office that could take away our rights. I hope they'll talk about some of the changes to the law that need to be made. Obviously, the Electoral College Act has already been started um, to be amended, but there's so much more that needs to be done to, to... stop this. But I think those are two of the things, you know, I mean, there's so many, so many things that can't be covered in even a full day of hearings. And yes, yes. in general, they've only been a few hours, which is basically the attention span of the American public, um, of all of us. I mean, you mm-hmm. just can't go too long, but you know, what did Ginny Thomas say? And I, I, the image of her walking in. Oh my gosh. Yes. That the, the yes, smugness. So yeah. Talking to you. I mean, it was, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of questions, but I, I think they've done a really brilliant job and I, whatever they do, don't underestimate what this one will be. Yes. Everybody should tune in. Yeah. So. And we can't discount the fact that hopefully this will also be a motivational factor for voters. Um, just, yep. We're under 30 days from the midterm election, um, and this hearing hopefully will be uh, will raise the stakes of why everyone needs to vote and try to vote, not just for senators and, and elected members of Congress, but also for down-ballot races, because like you said, they are all across the country, and it is frightening. There was uh, a Washington Post um, piece over the weekend that kind of tracked all of the um, election deniers across the country, and it's like, oh my gosh, like where aren't they? And so it's up to all of us to hopefully tune in know what's at stake, know the threat that's still ongoing, and then vote uh, in, in 20-something days. Exactly. I'm taking a 7.14 a.m. flight <laughs> in order to be able to talk about, uh, you know, do pre-predictions uh, yep. before the hearing yep. starts uh, with Mehdi Hassan, and mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. to watch the hearings and then do commentary afterwards. I mean, just um, for our audience, 7.14 a.m., that's like, that happens once in a decade for Jill. Yeah. I mean, I usually go to bed at two or three in the morning. Yeah. So for me to take a 7.14 a.m. flight, but there, there's only, I mean, it's either that or I miss it. There's no yeah, other right, choice right. because there aren't a lot of flights out of well, Grand It's, it's the things we all must do to, to tune in and, and watch the hearing. So I can um, do it. You can Everyone do it. Everyone else can do it. Exactly. Thank all of our listeners and viewers uh, for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, like we said uh, throughout the episode, Michael's book comes out tomorrow. We look forward to reading it and hopefully having him back on to ask him probing questions about that book. But in the meantime, we'll be back next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. You can subscribe to us on youtube.com slash politicon 
We're here every week. Uh, click the bell for uh, weekly notifications. And if you don't watch us on YouTube, we're also uh, wherever you follow your podcast. So follow us there. Uh, we release episodes every Wednesday morning. So like us, subscribe to us, leave us a rating on those podcasts, and we will see you next week. Thank you so much for watching this episode of iGen Politics. <laughs>